Lord God, we come to you this morning grateful that we can look once again into the fullness of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and look at this incredible passage which many of us had heard over and over. And we ask, Lord, that as we do look at it, that you would speak afresh to us. Take our minds, think through them. Take my lips, speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned at the welcome, we arrived this morning to Trinity Sunday, where, as I just praised, we recognize the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in each and every one of us. And practically speaking, on the ground tomorrow morning as we all go back to work, it forces us to think about what this season of Trinity, what this season of Pentecost practically means for us. And to think about what the gospel's effect as it is taken from this place out into the world. So I invite you to open up in your Bibles. Turn with me to the Word of God in John chapter 3. Because we're going to look at that this morning. It's also, if you're visiting with us, you'll notice it's in the back of the bulletin. Because one of the things the good news of Jesus does in our world is that he converts people. In this famous passage in John's biography that we have just read, we see Jesus describing exactly what the gospel does in the new birth, in being born again. And what we learn here are five things in this well-familiar passage. We learn what it is, who it's for, where it's from, you know, how do we respond, and what does it mean for us? What's its effect for us as his followers? Five things. Once again, what it is, who it's for, where it's from, wh how do we respond, and what's it mean? What's its effects for us? So let's go. Let's look at this. Number one, what does it mean to be born again? Verse three, essentially, it's the implantation of the new life of God in Christ. Verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, it says you have to be born of water and of the Spirit. Those are not different things. They are different ways to say the same thing. And what Jesus is doing here, he's referring to the Old Testament. Places where water was literally life-giving. The most famous example of that is Ezekiel chapter 36. He receives a vision of a arid, dry land, yet God provides water in that climate, which was life-giving. Often in the Old Testament, the Spirit is called spiritual water. As God's Spirit cleanses, but it also gives us life. Therefore, what we're being told here is God's very life, His Holy Spirit, is implanted in you as you have trusted in Jesus alone. And the reason we have to keep this in mind, because we think that being born again is turning over a new leaf, right? It's a moral change of behavior. I'm going to stop doing this, and I'm going to start doing that. And that's a mistake to think of it that way, although that does happen in the life of a believer. 
um, that's not primarily what being born again is. It's the implantation of a new life, which has two aspects to it. The first aspect is we get a new identity. Look at the term. You have to be born again. It's a new birth. Nicodemus, although he was a Pharisee, probably said, hey, I'm not perfect, but I could use a spiritual charge. Comes in the middle of the night to see Jesus. Wants to make sure he gets it right. Some type of extra infusion of spirituality. But Jesus, when he uses the new birth term, is saying, oh, no, Nicodemus, you're not new and improved. You need a new transformation. Total. The idea of being born again means you become a totally new person, not a new and improved person. Like Louis Zamperini. Many of you saw the movie Unbroken, which told the first half of his life. He was the famous gold medalist sprinter in the 30s, going into the 40s. Like all of the men of that generation you know, joined to serve the country. His identity was wrapped up in being an Olympian. But yet his plane went down in the Pacific. He was captured by the Japanese, endured an awful POW camp in Japan. He survived, came back to the country as a celebrity, as a person, an Olympian who survived this awful experience. Married a beautiful woman, started a family together, but never got over that POW camp experience because his identity was in an Olympian still. He was living in the past, not the present. So he sunk his life into alcohol and became an alcoholic until one day in 1948, there was a young evangelist named Billy Graham who came to Los Angeles and he went in to this week of meetings. His wife had already gone in and said, Louis, you got to come hear this guy. This is amazing. He goes, I'm not going to go hear him. Three days later, he goes and hears him, bends the knee of his heart, and is transformed. His identity no longer was being an Olympian. His identity was no longer being the war hero who survived the POW camp. His identity was in Jesus Christ, and he spent the rest of his days working for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association as a traveling evangelist. Can you imagine? Because that's what it does to people. It radically changes us. The world thinks it's radical, but for God's kingdom, it's normal. That's what the new birth is. Because we tend to evolve in our identities as suburban American people, typically. You know, we say things like, I'm somebody because fill in the blank. I'm somebody because I'm a good person. I'm somebody because I'm a good mom. I'm a good dad. I'm somebody because I'm fit and I'm beautiful. I'm somebody because I'm successful. I'm somebody because I help anybody. Until you finally realize in each and every one of those cases, all you're trying to do is save yourself. And it's utterly exhausting. Until you realize all I really need to know is that God loves me because he loves me because of the cross that he died on for me. That really changes everything. See, the new birth is not, I've got an agenda and I need some help to get to my agenda. No, it's a whole new agenda. New birth is not, I'm kind of weak and flailing and I need some self-esteem. I need to get built up. No, 
the new birth doesn't fix your identity. It gives you a whole new identity. It gives you a whole new purpose in life, a whole new way of thinking about yourself. It means you're somebody else in Christ. That's the first thing it is and what it does. Secondly, the second aspect of being born again, it gives you a new sight. You see things from a new perspective all the time. You might have grown up in church. You might have won the attendance award at Sunday school. You know all these Bible stories. You are a Bible know-it-all, but all of a sudden you meet Jesus Christ. And you realize all you've been doing is trying to earn it by good works. And you repent. And you come to faith in Jesus. And all of a sudden, texts like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life, comes alive to you. You've heard that text over and over your whole life. But suddenly, it's new. Why? Because you have new sight. You see things differently. <laughs> it's, it's, and before, it was like eating spiritual rice cakes dry. You ever had rice cakes? They're awful. You know, it's like tasting air. You know? That's what it was before you met Christ. But when you're born again, it's like a feast. It doesn't stop. And so, that's what God does to us. He brings us to the place where we see Jesus and his love becomes more real to you than your love for your husband, your love for your wife. You don't care what your boss says because your identity is not wrapped up in that. When his love becomes more real to you than those things, you're now alive and now you can face tomorrow morning. It's not just turning over a new leaf or a behavioral change. It's getting new life implanted in you, and that means a whole new identity and a whole new vision for what God wants to do in and through you. Don't underestimate the newness of what it means to be a Christian. C.S. Lewis said, most of us go to God saying, if you come into my life, could you fix the roof of my cottage? <laughs> when he actually wants to turn you into a castle. He wants to do things you can't even imagine. The only thing you must anticipate as you consider becoming a real Christian, a born-again Christian, is you can't possibly anticipate what you're going to feel like on the inside. Therefore, you must not lay down conditions. Ladies and gentlemen, you must not say, well, I'd like to become a Christian, but not after I do this and not if I have to do that. What you need to say is, I give up my self-determination. I need to be born again, and that means something pretty radical. I don't, I'm going to see things, I'm going to know things, I'm going to want things very differently than in the past. And this is where most people balk, isn't it? I'm begging you, don't balk today. That's what being born again is. Well, who is this born again thing for? Because when you also hear this term, most Americans, when they hear the term, not only do they think it's turning over a new leaf, they think it's a particular kind of person. You know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind of Christian. You know, that's an emotional Christian. That's a person who needs a 12-step morality course. You know, that's what they are. I'm not like them. You know, that's what people think. 
But my question to you is, is that who Nicodemus is? Yes or no? Yes or no? Let me hear you. No, it's not who Nicodemus is. He's an upstanding Harvard equivalent grad. He's a Pharisee. He's smart. He's upright. He's a stand-up guy. You want Nicodemus as your neighbor. He'd mow your grass for you. All right? He's an amazing guy. But it's to him, Jesus says, Nicodemus, nothing you've done counts. You must be born again. That means Jesus' call to be born again cannot be a call to traditional religion. It's actually a challenge against it. No matter how good and put together your life is, you must be born again. Conversely, no matter how messed up your life is, you must be born again. That's who it's all for, in reality. It's for everybody. So, three. So where's this born again thing from? Well, twice here, Jesus mentioned in verse 3 and verse 5, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You know? What's significant in John is almost never does he use that phrase, the kingdom of God. Therefore, it's important, and we need to pay attention. How would Nicodemus have heard that phrase, the kingdom of God? An ancient Jew would have thought in what the kingdom of God is when God creates the new heaven and new earth at the end of ages, which is what we believe, you know, quite frankly. We believe there will be a day, like they believe, that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth and wipe away every tear. No more pain, no more suffering, no more evil, right? And he would have heard it that way. He seems to be saying that the kingdom of God right now can be born again and entered into but the kingdom of God is in the future. So how does that work? Well, Greek philosophers believed that history was cyclical. And as the world got all messed up, the gods just blew it all up, it burned up, and they started over and rebirthed it. The Greek word for that was palagenesia. We don't use that word every day. We translate it regeneration or rebirth of the world. And they believed that happened every so often. But shockingly, Jesus in Matthew 19, when he's talking about his coming again for his church, and the dead will rise, the dead in Christ, Matthew 19, he says, At the renewal of all things, the palagenesia, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is saying the Greek philosophers have it all wrong. There's only one regeneration of the world, one time, one day, which all disease, death, sorrow, pain, evil, suffering will be gone, and that will be the day when I come back, according to Jesus. There will be a palagenesia, a regeneration of the world. And it will happen in the future when I come and return. And as amazing as that is, Paul says that that rebirth happens in us. In Titus 3.5, he says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth, palagenesia, and renewal by the Holy Spirit when he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. 
what Paul is definitely saying and what Jesus is hinting at here is that the new birth, being born again, is an implantation of God's future power in you right now. The future power of God is going to exercise at the end of time to heal everything. The whole world comes into your life right now. Partially, but actually. And begins to do its healing work in each and every one of us who trust Christ. And it's a new birth in the present, in the future. It's like time travel. You've got a time machine, but it's not you traveling into time. Time comes to you in the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. And I know this sounds very mysterious, very complex, very esoteric. But practically speaking, never underestimate the power of the new birth. Because Peter was a foot in the mouth, uneducated, fishing, cowardly man. And Paul was a highly articulated, educated murderer. And God used them both to change the world. And as Tim Keller says, they were not made of more promising material than you. There's no hurt, no fear, no guilt, nothing in your life that this new birth cannot move, remove, and or heal. Because it's from the future. That's where this new birth is coming from. So how do we respond? That's the real question, right? Okay, we know what it is. We know who it's for. We know where it's from. Well, well, that's the real question is how do we approach it? How do we approach God? How do we respond? It's implied here, but there's two parts to approaching God. Number one, there's grace. and Number two, it's by Jesus Christ in particular. Because in this passage, Jesus is saying you're all on the same level. The most pulled together and the most messed up people all need to be born again. So whether you're trying to save yourself by being moral or helpful or beautiful or successful, it doesn't matter. You're trying to save yourself and you're putting yourself in the place of God. And Jesus is saying, therefore, the best of us and the worst of us equally, if they're going to be born again, it has to be by God's grace. It has to be by God's intervention. It has to be by God's power that you contribute nothing you know, babies don't contribute anything to their birth. I'm a grandfather, I know. All right? It all has to do with what parents have done, particularly their mother. Right? It has nothing to do with the baby's effort. And therefore, you are saved by God's sheer grace. You know, as long as you say, I can save myself, I can be good enough on my own, you can't experience the grace of God. It's not until you realize salvation is all of grace. It's a gift that you can begin to experience it. And we call this repentance. You know, the first thing you need to do to be converted is to repent before God's grace and say, I see I've been trying to save myself all these years. I need your sheer grace, O oh Lord. Martin Luther himself said it this way, quote, I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's word in Romans 1.17, where he says, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. 
I grasp that the righteousness of God is that righteousness which through grace and sheer mercy God gives us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. When I saw the difference that law is one thing and the gospel is another, I broke through. Isn't that great? Luther, what, he, what he's saying is, as long as I was thinking, how do I get righteous so that God is pleased with me, I was ultimately frustrated. But the minute I understood that salvation was a gift, I was born again. The minute that I saw the difference between what it meant to save myself and receive salvation as a gift, I broke through. It makes sense. If you want to experience the grace of God, you have to grasp with your mind that salvation is only by the grace of God. That's the first thing. And the second thing you have to understand is it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone in his work and what he's done for you in particular. You know, I saw all of my four children born. I will spare you the details. Okay? But I can tell you confidently that none of them came out happy. None of them were smiling. Okay? They all came out through the pain and labor of someone else, particularly their mother. All right? So one of the problems we have in understanding this born-again belief is that we, we've grown up in an in a era of epidurals. If you don't know what an epidural is, ask your parents, young people. And if you're an adult and you don't know what it is, ask any woman. She'll tell you. All right? Giving birth today is relatively safe. But in Jesus' day, what Jesus was talking about is how we must be born again. He was living in a time when the woman literally not only went through the pain for the child, she was putting her life on the line. In the 1800s, one in five women died in childbirth. Did you know that? 20% chance of dying. But what is Jesus is saying here is you're not saved by works, so you must be born again. He's saying if you get new life, it's only through the pain and suffering of someone else. And it's not just someone who risked his life for you, but he gave his life for you. Someone who died on the cross for you and didn't experience physical pain and suffering, but something far more eternal than even that. That's the reason Jesus later says in John 16, and, and he, you know, he's basically saying, in a little while I'm going to go to the cross, and then he says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her hour has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Well, that's kind of strange. He's talking about going to the cross, and then he talks about childbirth. Why does he do that? Well, those of you who know the Gospel of John realize whenever Jesus talks about his death and the cross, he talks about it, he calls it his hour. John chapter 2. Mary comes to him and says, the wine's out, son. You need to do something. He says, my hour hasn't come. He says that all throughout John, but here he's saying, my hour has come. He has the audacity to say, I am a, like a woman in labor, and my hour has come. And in spite of the fact that she is in incredible pain, the sight of her child immediately fills her with great joy. And the pain was all worth it. And Jesus is saying, 
I know that. That's just a dim hint of the joy that I sense when I look at you, says Jesus. I look at all my pain, all my suffering, all my death upon the cross, and it was all worth it. I'm the one in labor. I'm the one who has given his life. Until you see that, until you trust fully, move it from the head to your heart, get converted, you can't be born again. So how do you get born again? Well, you repent before the grace of God. You trust in what he has done for you on the cross, and that's it, alone. And it's from there we live. From there we walk. And that's the last point. So what does it look like in a life? Well, look at Nicodemus. You know, John 19, you know, there's no explicit saying that Jesus came to faith in Jesus Christ. But who is there to take his body down? Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and the women. All the disciples had scattered to the four winds. They were still there. They were the one who brought Jesus down. They were the ones who cleaned his body up and prepared it for burial. Wiped all the blood, all the gunk that is off him, and they buried him. And that was an incredibly bold move because Nicodemus was a changed man. He was unbelievably courageous because this was a time when the leader of his movement had been killed, and yet he was still ready to identify publicly with Jesus Christ. That took guts. On the other hand, the only people in a culture who ever, ever washed and prepared a dead body for, babel, for burial were slaves and women. Because it was considered, and it was, a foul, terrible, and horrible process. A man of a particular rank would never have ever done such a thing, but Nicodemus and Joseph did. So what does this mean? On the one hand, he was more courageous. On the one hand, he was more, more of a man than he had ever been before. His male pride was gone. His cultural pride was gone. His class pride was gone. And he'd become bolder, more humble, more courageous, more culturally flexible than he'd ever been before. Because his whole identity had been pulled up and replanted in new soil. Because salvation, being born again, is not going through religiosity, going through religious rituals, going and getting confirmed, getting a Bible. Do this, don't do that. What it is, is I repent and fall on the sheer grace of Jesus Christ. And I receive that into my life. And the Holy Spirit comes in, and I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. That's the only way it works. That's the way. The only way you become a Christian. And that's being born again. In closing, Lewis says in Mere Christianity, The principle runs through all life, top from the bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, and your favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. 
Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not taken away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful you've given us this time to consider this Trinity Sunday, this radical call. It's actually a very frightening thing. It's also the most wonderful thing in the world that we lose ourselves to really get our new selves. We have to repent and to trust in you alone and believe and we give ourselves away. We pray, Lord, you would help us to do exactly that. We pray, Lord, for those of us who, who really do know what the, all this means and really have been converted to see that at times in our lives we have underestimated the power and newness that is within us. And therefore, we're in many ways we haven't lived as we could have. And we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray for those of us who are still contemplating all of this that your Spirit would open their hearts so they can see the only way to live is to die to our present self and to open up and trust you as your Son, Jesus Christ, trusted you, who at the very end of his life said, Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us here this morning would do the same thing. We ask all of this in the name of the one who did all of that for us, Jesus Christ our Savior, our Lord, and our God. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.